Hi, and welcome to Friends of Brother Adam. My name is Dennis, and I'll be your host for this evening. This evening, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the uh, name Friends of Brother Adam of the, our podcast here, and as also um, the uh, little tease that I put at the beginning of this about Bizen. Uh It's kind of important because it kind of, uh, or it does give you a little bit of idea of why I do beekeeping and what my theories on beekeeping are. So it'll help you understand a little bit about that. This is going to be under the beginning beekeepers because it's going to be something that I use to fill in some of the uh, cracks of uh, beekeeping knowledge for my beginning beekeepers um, so that they can listen in between <laughs> in between the courses that, that we meet at and uh, it, it may help them out with uh, figuring out some of their theories of beekeeping and how they will approach the bees. Uh, you can find me at https colon forward slash forward slash lbry dot tv or on odyssey spelled o-d-y-s-e-e dot -E com. You can look me up at Friends of Brother Adam. I can be also found on Podbeam under the same uh, Friends of Brother Adam as well on Anchor, which is the uh, uh, app that I utilize in order to uh, make this podcast right now, anchor.fm, spelled A-N-C-H-O-R.fm, or you can get the app on any Play Store as well. Um, we hope that you uh, help support us by watching Odyssey and Library. We get a little tiny bit of Odyssey coin every time you watch, or, or Library coin every time you watch our videos. Um, also, some of the videos on there are... Um, uh, do cost uh, a micro cent <laughs> 0.002 or something um, so it's it's just uh, asking you to support me a little bit as you watch the videos um, also uh, you can send a library coin tip to me uh, when you join up to library they give you um, I think it's like 15 uh, library credits um, so you can utilize that to send a tip or if you get in there and you earn some of their library coin, you can um, take some of that library coin that you've earned and send it to your the people that you feel have given you the most value out of uh, the time that you've spent listening. Also up in the corner of this podcast, you'll notice a little square QR code on the splash screen. You can, if you have a Bitcoin wallet, you can open... Uh, up your Bitcoin wallet and send me a portion of a Bitcoin um, if you are enjoying and, and finding some value in this podcast. Uh, also, you can send me um, through my email, which is um, fatbeehoneyranch, all small letters, at gmail.com. You can send me an email transfer. And I did get an email transfer just the other night, and I really appreciate um, those people who helped me out with that. Um, it is going towards me purchasing one of those nice video editing PCs. They call it a gaming PC, but I just don't do games. <laughs> I do more of the video editing and, and being able to run my OBS and everything like that on there. So that's what we're heading for, and I appreciate your help in getting to that goal. Um, and without further ado, we'll head on into what we're talking about. I have teased you with the name Friends of Brother Adam and with the term Bizen. 
with, uh, <laughs> with um, these two terms, um, I, I have tried to tell you what we're going to be uh, talking about, and it does require a little bit of uh, 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 not pop culture knowledge, but more cultural knowledge, I guess. Um, as you know, I was um, in the military for quite some time, and uh, I did serve in Iraq. And when I came home, you know, I, I, I definitely won the war all by myself. <laughs> but uh, I uh, really wasn't uh, exposed to um, very much as far as the uh, violence of combat. However, I was in the combat area. And uh, we did uh, several missions and things where things were a little bit uh, scary at times. But, uh, you know, not every soldier who, who uh, goes over there gets shot at. Not every soldier returns fire and anger. Um, and a lot of us come home with, I don't know, just some sort of uh, uneasiness or anxiety uh, just from the situations we were, we were in. I sat down with a psychologist after I got home and, and figured out some of the things that were, you know, triggering some of the anxiety and, 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 and you know, getting to me. And uh, they were kind of silly things. Um, and we sat down and talked about the last time I felt that in theater. And uh, we started working on a little bit of extinction as far as, you know, getting rid of the anxiety by taking small doses of whatever was causing the anxiety and uh and in that way we kind of got out of that you know scary area where you come back and you're just not <laughs> you're quite uh not you <laughs> however you know there were a lot of things that i missed as well with the military um I'm, I'm going to kind of read one of the things that I, I, I heard um, somebody say about his time in the military. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I really agree with this. Um, it, in the foreword, it's, it's by Frederick Stenbach. For a long time, I have sincerely felt I made the wrong decision when I left the military in 1998. I missed the passion, the friendship, the adventure, also how there was not an option to miss on solving the task at hand and never let things slip, not to forget the trust amongst the colleagues and the constant flow of constructive feedback that was given and taken. I know it is many years ago and a lot of things have happened since, but I really do miss that job. So it goes in and, and expresses some regrets, but I'm going to skip down to what he misses. This one is easy. I miss the comradeship, the passion, the adventure, the mental and physical challenge. I also sincerely felt I was really good at what I did and good at running our missions. I was not a perfect military officer in any way. I had my flaws, which I guess both old colleagues and soldiers can and fellow soldiers can confirm. I had no ambition of becoming higher up. 
Now he was probably considered by many as a soldier first and an officer second. I was certainly a life it was certainly a lifestyle even though I did not have much time off duty, often by choice. I ended up um, hanging around the regiment most days when I was off duty as well because I wanted to. My friends were already there. In the military, I felt I shared my passion and expertise with every single officer I worked with in those units. This is one of the things that is also flawed in the civilian workplace. He, he's just comparing what civilian and military workplaces are like. Colleagues get away with being lazy and not doing their job. How the hell can that happen or be allowed for that matter? It simply seems that people go to work to get a salary, not due to passion, at least a little, or that they or that they like what they do. Just look around yourself today. I'm 100% sure you have a few colleagues that you sincerely think that are lazy schmucks and or simply bad at what they do. The scary thing is that is allowed. Yes, we had different levels of ambition between my colleagues in the military as well. I can honestly say that none of them let things slip, lacked ethics, or lacked passion. Work like that is almost impossible to do without passion and ethics. This created a huge respect amongst the colleagues, which I have not seen since and I miss dearly. Um, I also missed miss the constructive feedback. It was a big challenge for me as a manager when I left the military getting constructive feedback from colleagues and employees. It created a few strange situations to give to say the least even uh, given it's almost 20 years ago since I left. I still see this as something that the private sector can learn from the military. If no feedback or bad feedback it just creates backstabbing confusion rumors and a bad work environment. I've seen it so many times. Um, back in World War One, uh, they realized that um, it was quite a different thing for soldiers to come home. Um, those guys were in war for years and years. Um, they had uh, shell shock. They had all sorts of things that were causing them to have um, some issues with uh, returning back to normal. <laughs> what is normal, right? Um, but uh, they would come back and they would have uh, just, they wouldn't be able to, to fit in. Um, things, you know, they were anxious, they were, uh, they had different behavioral problems because that's how they adapted to the stress and ardor of military life. And so one of the things that they were hooked up with uh, to help them with their, their, returning to <laughs> civility um, is they were hooked up as beekeepers. They were, they were given a hive and they were uh, taught how to use the hive and how to work with the bees and it helped a whole hell of a lot of people. Just looking up on a, a, a blog here, um, blogs.va.gov va.gov. It talks about an army veteran, um, Eric Grandin, who had multiple deployments over to Iraq over the course of a two-decade career. Retiring in 2005, he started facing bouts of depression, reaching a low point in 2013 when he found something that brought back his adrenaline rush like he had in the military and connecting him with fellow veterans and giving him a purpose. Bees. 
first time I went into the hive, it was like magic, he said. All the anxiety and the outside noise, all the guilt, it all quit. That road to be quiet on the, or to quiet the outside noise took some time. Grandin said, or Grandin was the first person signed up in West Virginia's Warriors to Agriculture program, now Veterans and Heroes to Agriculture program. He started attending classes in 2014, but said it took him some time to gain a comfort level. Uh, for two years, I didn't go in the hive, he said. Thankfully, they survived. <laughs> Each colony has about 40 to 60,000 bees, and in his first year, he had two colonies and expanded to 18 the next year and now has over 115. In addition to taking his mind off of war memories, he now is feeling like he has accomplished things because he sells honey, pollen, wax, and propolis, all things from the hive. Additionally, Grandin now trains fellow veterans on beekeeping totaling more than the 700 or more than 700 veterans in the past several years. Valerie Carter, a re recreational therapist for the Manchester VA Medical Center, started the beekeeping program two years ago. She knew a veteran's wife who was a beekeeper and said that her initial motivation was to find a therapeutic outlet for veterans. The veterans told her that they had improved social connections along with decreases in post-traumatic stress and depression. One veteran said he had worked with the VA team to reduce mental health and medications and visits to his therapists. According to Carter, the COVID-19 pandemic definitely put a strain on the 2020 program because the veterans weren't physically at the medical center. Uh-huh. However, she noticed the veterans still held each other accountable over um, video chats. And, uh, of course, they all had their heads in the hives at home. Um, brings me back to now. Since Vince Yileto, I can't say his last name, I'm sorry, but he is one of the veterans in the Manchester program, uh, a Concord resident. Um, he served more than 38 years in the Army Reserve. He completed two tours in Iraq, 2003 through 2005. That's around about where I was. And 2009 to 2000, or 2010, when Carter called him about the program, he joined saying, I'll try anything once. For there, his passion took off. To go and to have the camaraderie again is great. He said, I was so taken with it. So his fellow beekeepers, and, and this is something that I've noticed about beekeepers, is we have a general care about other beekeepers. And this is a little tiny bit of what we had um, back in our military units. Um, in our military units, I don't know if you know, but we were assigned one person who actually became closer to us than than a spouse. Um, that person was in charge of making sure that we um, had our shirts tucked in, that our, our laces were tied, that we were doing okay mentally, that we had made sure that we had gotten food that day, that, that they were in charge of making sure that we were okay. And if something went wrong, they were the people who uh, let people know that things were going wrong. They were the people who 
were first responders for any um, anxiety or anything like that or or you know if if the worst happened you know when when people felt like there was nothing left to continue for your battle buddy was there for you and pulled you off the brink and 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 brought you back so um this was a, a relationship that honestly is closer than than uh, husband and wife and it's uh, a lot of times uh, most times it's uh, a same sex type uh relationship so um for for guys you know they usually have a battle buddy guy and uh, so we're able to talk about all the things um, under the sun that uh, um, were giving us trouble or that we were worried about or whatever. And as we come to beekeeping, um, a lot of military people transfer over that trust and that, that care for their fellow being with other fellow beekeepers. So it is something that is is for real and uh it, it really helps out and it gets you back in an organization and it, it's not a it's not a paramilitary organization so it doesn't bring up a lot of the uh, uh memories and the guilt and the the anxiety that that would come up if it were a paramilitary operation but it is something that requires you to be constantly present and it requires you to have um a lot of the ethics and, and values that you had during your, your time in service. <clears throat> so um, let me cruise on over here to the page that I had this on. Um, so, and, and this totally goes towards the B-Zen. Um, I missed, when I got out, I missed the fellowship I miss the mindless rote activity that we we um, often did. I mean, how often, if you're a military person, how often did you shine your boots? How often were you mindlessly going about preparing for the next day um, while you were chatting and talking with your fellow uh, battle buddies and with all the people that that were in your your uh, your wing? you know, and just everybody there. Um, always having a battle buddy around, never being alone. Or if you were alone, you, you knew that they were always within reach, that you could um, contact them and they would be there for you. Um, so many other things. And the bees require you to be present. Like the military, this work requires precision, rhythm, working in consort with other living beings. And if you get too slap happy or fast, you find out really quick and you're brought back to the Zen. Um, slow is smooth. Smooth is deliberate. Deliberate is fast. That's an axiom from the military. And um, moving fast in the military is considered reckless. In the military, um, we we do have that, that, uh, that phrase that I just used however if you have if you move slow and careful and deliberate you're actually moving quite fast as you don't have to go back and repeat your mis you know repeat things that you made a mistake on 
And you're actually moving as fast as you can, being efficient without being needlessly um, reckless with your life. Um, and bees, bees give us a little warning at the cost of one of their little lives that that we are going too fast. When when a bee stings you, that particular bee is now essentially dead. Um, it will die later on, um, and several hours later sometimes. Um, but uh, it, it is something that you can, um, you know, when, when they sting you, it, it brings you back to, gives you that reminder that, hey, you're going too quick. Hey, you're not doing what's right. So it does that for you. Um, I... Uh, I'm able to start beekeeping and uh, come to several hours later, um, happily working all day, solving one task at a time, being calm, slow, gentle, uh, utilizing all my senses, but more sound, smell, and touch. Mostly because I need my reader glasses and the black screen and on my hood blocks really close vision. But using vision made... In the majority of time, um, overpowers a lot of the other senses as you're beekeeping. So utilizing the other senses more helps you connect with the story of the hive and permits one to drop into that bee zen. Um, it has really helped me. Um, it has helped me uh, get rid of the anxiety that I had. It has helped me. Um, it has helped me immensely. And um, and yes, I, I do feel that camaraderie between beekeepers um, and, you know, um, in the military, if you uh, if you needed something, you always had somebody there to help you out, to, to give you something so that you could just make it by and and uh, so, until you could uh, fix things for yourself. So um, and I also with this with this uh, podcast, um, one of the things that I do um, for uh, full time work uh, occasionally <laughs> is I I do some um, uh, addictions counseling. I have my bachelor's degree in addictions counseling, and uh, you know usually I'm able to serve fries with that, <laughs> meaning I usually have to find some other work because. Um, addictions counseling is one of those areas that uh, either people uh, die out of it or they they the some of your coworkers get pregnant and and then decide they don't want to come back and that's the only time you can really get into the positions or unless you find a position where um, there's so much burnout that that uh, um, you're able to sneak on in there and, and uh, take over that position but because of that I I've been well versed in um, AA, um, and so as I was looking for uh, a name for the podcast, um, you know I I remembered in AA in the book that we had to read for AA, um, the AA book, there they referred to uh, people of AA as friends of Bill. Um, and that's uh, Dr. Bill Wilson. 
he was the one who essentially started AA. Um, and in AA, they talk about a higher power, which enables the structure of AA. And, you know, for me, that really applied here. I found a lot of, lot of uh, connections to beekeeping. So just give me a little bit of, uh, a little bit of leash here, okay? So in step two, it says, we came to believe a higher power can restore us to sanity. And um, am I saying the bees are a higher power? No, <laughs> but just wait, just wait. Uh, something outside of oneself that we do not control is considered to be the higher power. And they're very loose with that whole entire concept because it allows for Christians to have their God, for Buddhists to name a higher power, for even atheists to name something outside of their self. And it is up to the individual in AA to decide on how they will um, choose to define that higher power. And there are no rules. This higher power can give people a sense of purpose in their lives, uh, discovery for oneself. The rules of that higher power follows what benefits can be gained from uh, emulating and understanding these these processes, even joining in on the creation process of this higher power. In beekeeping, we can see that our hive, we can, we, we might be able to see our hives as a higher power um, because the, the beehives, even though we can do things to the beehives um, and to the bees, honestly, we don't control them and they will react to us They'll give us feedback, um, but they definitely aren't ruled like a house cat or, or a dog or, or something else. Um, in in uh, beekeeping, we, uh, we know that the bees have an intrins intrinsic wisdom to them. They follow certain rules and we can benefit from gaining wisdom from those rules. We can join into the creation process with the bees and be able to have uh, proof of our um, work um, when we start harvesting honey, pollen, propolis, um, wax, all the things that the bees do. And as we start selling uh, the, the baby hives of bees, the nukes, um, you know, we really get a sense of, of uh, accomplishment and have working with that, that creation process. So we can also utilize some of the knowledge that we gain and transfer it over to our lives. Um, there, are certain, there are certain truths and certain things that we can transfer over to our lives. And I'm going to leave it up to you guys to find some of those truths out. There are things that I have found that I just, I, I kind of hold to myself and, and I, I really, um, I, I still work on those truths that I have found. So <clears throat> what understanding can we, can you transfer to your life? Uh, because of Bill Wilson, the last full-named person in the AA book and in the organization, um, from his desire to help fellow addicts, we too can, can gain some 
purpose in what we're doing. We can help others with our hobby of beekeeping. We can we can help people understand the bees and help people um, interface with uh, nature as they start working with the bees. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about an amazing beekeeper because, um, you know, I, I talked about earlier how sometimes using your sight can, can overpower some of the things that you're doing as a beekeeper. There was a gentleman who is, who was a beekeeper in history. He was a beekeeper around about 1770-ish, so back when um, the U.S. was first starting to look at gaining its freedom, 1776, you know, um, he brought to us uh, our modern understanding of beekeeping. His name was Francis Huber. He was uh, a Swiss etymologist, which means um, somebody who studies bugs, and he specialized in honeybees. He was recognized worldwide for his discoveries, and based on thorough observation with the help of several assistants, because Francois Hubert was blind. He started losing his sight about age 15. Due to his blindness, he had to wait until his sweetheart was 25, um, then the age of majority for women, to marry because um, his rich father-in-law did not want his daughter to spend his wealth on a blind man, even if he was nobility. Initially, he was doing what we all need to do as beekeepers. He wanted to verify some facts and uh, fill in some of the uh, missing pieces, missing pieces of info. Um, since he was blind, he had to rely upon the help of others. He had a, a servant whom he trained to keep bees and then instructed him on what he wanted that person to do. And the amount of discoveries that he has rocked the beekeeping world. He discovered queens fly out to get mated in the air. He discovered um, bees convert brood to queen cells by the use of royal jelly. He discovered worker bees can actually lay eggs. He discovered queens fly out um, or queens fight only other queens. Hold on here a sec. Wow, <laughs> the throat really gets uh, really dry when we're doing this. Um, he found out that drones are pushed out or killed at the end of summer. He found out larva spins silk for the bee cocoons. Um, he found that queens are ovi oviparitous, which means uh, multiple mates, and she can decide which sperm is used. And he also found out how swarms form by adding a new queen to the hive. <laughs> so most of the stuff that we talk about, that we utilize, this gentleman found. And he found it while he was blind. Um, so I just wanted to, to go into a little bit of um, what we can do and what sort of things we can find um, when we are beekeeping 
um, that are non-site type of uh, um, things. So bees utilize sound a whole bunch. And if you've ever walked up to a hive that is really having a good time and very happy, they have a beautiful hum about them. And if you've ever walked up to a hive that is sick, the silence is deafening. It is horrible. Um, and um, if you've ever accidentally knocked over a hive, <laughs> you really know the sound of anger. <laughs> okay, so bees generate sound. Uh, not only with their wings, but they have the ability to uncouple or disjoint their wings and move their muscles, their, their thoracic muscles below and create sound and heat. Queen bees pipe. They whistle a sound which is meant to be as a challenge to other queens to come and fight. And bees also wriggle their backsides, um, causing, causing some sound and vibration on the comb. Um, during their dances and uh, their dances a lot of times can be felt through multiple combs which is why we don't like plastic because it doesn't transfer the sound and vibrations as easily um, so they utilize sound and as a beekeeper you need to be acutely aware of the sound of a hive you need to be present and when you hear that pitch or that sound change, there are stuff that you can do to help yourself out <laughs> so you don't end up triggering that warning sound. Okay. Um, also, smell. Um, this is why we use smoke during the uh, um, process of going into bee key or beehives. Um, but it, the smoke eliminates the the smell from the hive but it is always good before you start ripping open a hive to go over and smell the hive and you might think that i'm being a little bit kooky but um they have different smells um if they have their um, um alarm smell their alarm smells kind of smells like ripe bananas if they are trying to um, bring um, their colleagues back, they have a different smell. So if you've opened up the hive and everybody is flowing out and is flying around everywhere, there's a bunch of bees that go up on the front of the hive and they um, lift up their Nazilov glands, which are in the back, and they fan their wings and it pushes out that pheromone and it's kind of a kind of a, I don't know, I almost want to say kind of a coppery smell. So they have, they have those, those smells of the hive and they're beautiful smells. And the hive, the wax, the honey, the processes that happen inside the hive have their own smell as well. Um, the brood have their own smell. The queen has her smell. The little footies of the uh, bees as they walk around have their smell. So I'm just going to quickly go in. Um, that smell is pheromones. And a lot, of, a lot of the communication that we totally miss in the hive comes from pheromones. And uh, the scientists have really gone to town figuring out some of these smells. So let's just go into it really quick. Um, types of pheromones. Mm. 
hold on, let's go up to the very top of this. I'm finding this at perfectbee.com. I love their site. They have a lot of stuff there that uh, helps helps me understand bees a lot better and, and it's it's in a very nice format, so I really like it. We have seen that bees have many ways to communicate, including vibrations through the honeycomb they build, through, but the most important and most powerful communication mechanism is through pheromones. Indeed, these pheromones within the colonies is essential for communication of events, the status of their health, and much more. Bees have one of the most sophisticated pheromone-driven communication systems in all of nature. Excuse me. <clears throat> With all three castes having the ability to signal other bees to their pheromones, let's look at a wide variety of ways in which the pheromones are used and why <clears throat> they are so essential to bees. Excuse me. What is a pheromone? A pheromone... Um, pheromones are widespread use throughout nature. A pheromone is a chemical substance released into the environment by an animal or insect for the purpose of changing behavior or physiology of the others of the same species. And sometimes of other species. Um, it is the foundation for how many animals live their lives, whether in relation to reproduction, survival, establishment of territorial boundaries or other key objectives of the species. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. <coughs> Quite bubbly cola. <laughs> um, one of the most well-known examples of the use of pheromones is by ants, um, such as when they establish and follow a trail, they, they put down their pheromones in the trail. But many other examples exist, such as in rats, moths, flies, and even underwater. There are deceptive uses of pheromones in nature too. Many orchids fool bees into visiting them and thus helping with pollination by counterfeiting the pheromone of a particular bee species. The effort necessary for the plant to create a pheromone to attract bees is lower than that of the necessity to offer a real reward of nectar. Nature is incredible. <laughs> we also utilize this. Um, we have uh, lemongrass oil that we use and if we are making a bait hive we put lemongrass oil in to uh, mimic the smell of a nice beehive and to mimic a smell of swarming. The importance of pheromones to bees. With this background, it is clear to see that the use of pheromones in the close confines of a beehive can be a powerful force, and indeed it is. Many key messages are sent through using pheromones, and we will see, as we will see in, in the following, uh, these range from relatively localized messages with minor impact to dramatic signals that rapidly change the behavior of the whole entire colony. Bees use pheromones in almost all aspects of their lives. This includes reproduction, development of brood, mating, swarming, foraging, defense, and more. Given a wide, the widespread use of pheromones, they can be considered to be the most important way in which bees communicate. And isn't that funny that most of the pheromones that they have we can't really sense. So most of the communication that's happening in the hive, if you're not using your sense of smell, 
if you're not trying to be aware of some of the other senses you have, you will miss them totally by utilizing vision only. As is the case with many animals in nature, bees use two types of pheromones, primer pheromones and releaser pheromones. Primer pheromones, these prompt a complex reaction in the receiver of the pheromone, creating changes that are both behavioral and developmental. They operate at a physiological level. Examples of primary pheromones in bees include the queen mandibular and brood pheromones, both covered a little bit later. Um, releaser pheromones, these have weaker short-term effect, generating more simplistic response at the receiver only at the behavior level. Worker bees generally use releaser pheromones. Pheromones are, a com are complex. <laughs> Sorry about that, I forgot to turn uh, my phone on do not disturb. So you got to hear my uh-oh. So hopefully that wasn't too crazy for you guys. Um, let's look at the various pheromones that might be floating around in your beehive. Queen mandibular, or the QMP, queen mandibular pheromone, is perhaps the most important pheromone um, from the perspective of the colony, it is comprised of five compounds and is secreted by the queen, essentially sends a message of queen is doing fine throughout the colony. QMP is interpreted in various ways and plays a role in the suppression of egg laying by worker bees swarming and in attracting drones when mating. The, the worker bee response to QMP is an example of a primer pheromone at work where the presence of QMP will stop their ovaries from developing. As worker bees encounter the queen, they will collect tiny amounts of QMP on their bodies, on their tongues. As they move around the hive to administer their, to their various duties, they spread QMP through the hive, chew it into the wax, um, and, and hand it to other bees. And this uh, through this mechanism, the colony expects certain levels of QMP to signal a healthy queen. When per bee QMP levels fall below a certain threshold, this may be interpreted as meaning the colony is too large. In these situations, swarming may result to reduce the number of bees in the beehive. So it's kind of a negative feedback thing as well. Queen retinue. The group of worker bees that follow queen around tending to her needs is referred to as the queen retinue. The queen retinue pheromone, QRP, is complex with both primer and releaser characteristics and has all the direct effect on the queen's retinue or has a direct effect on the queen's retinue. It can be considered as a subset or a, a superset, excuse me, of QMP since it is comprised of the five compounds of QMP plus four more. Alarm pheromone. The complexity of uh, pheromones in bees is illustrated by the two well-known types of alarm pheromone, which can be distinguished by the gland releasing the pheromone. From the Koschevinikov gland. This gland is near the sting shaft and is released when a bee stings. The release of the alarm pheromone is a defensive reaction to alert nearby bees. This pheromone smells like bananas. 
If you are unfortunate enough to be stung, you may wish to leave the area as you tend to, as you tend to the sting because the alarm pheromones that are being received by other bees, they will come and sting the same damn place. <laughs> From mandibular glands, this consists of two hepatone and it is used as an anesthetic to paralyze intruders, after which bees remove the intruder from the hive. Brood recognition. This pheromone is released by developing larvae and pupa. It signals to a worker bees that brood continues to develop in the hive, which, like QMP, limits the development of worker ovaries. It also keeps the bees in the hive. So if you are trying to keep a bunch of bees from absconding when you put them into a hive, it's always great to throw in an extra um, frame of brood from a different colony so that they go, oh, we're good. Let's stay here until at least these guys are hatched. And then by then, usually the queen gets to her work and then there's more brood and then they actually stay. So that's one of the th ways that you can utilize uh, brood recognition pheromone. Um, drone. Drone congregation areas, DCRs, are used as a consistent or are used as consistent places year after year for drones to gather and mate with queens. The drone pheromone is released by male bees to attract other drones to the DCA. Dufour's gland. This pheromone is evident on eggs laid by a queen. This allows workers to distinguish them from those laid by a worker bee. Um, the former being more attractive. Egg marking. This has a similar purpose to DeFore's gland pheromone and in that it helps worker bees distinguish between queen and worker-laid eggs. Nazilnov. An important pheromone released by worker bees to help returning foragers find their way back to the colony. Workers raise their abdomen and fan their wings as they release this pheromone. Footprint. This has a similar find home purpose and is deposited by uh, as bees walk around the hive. The queen also admits this as she moves around the hive. This signals that there is no need for the colony to consider, consider creating a new queen since she is still active. This one is also the one that they use when you put uh, robber cages on the front of your hive. They have their footprint pheromone walking out of their house and only they smell that footprint pheromone and uh, the robbers actually just sit there and bang against the screen. So it's it's something that they use to to help them find their way out of the, the hive. Older foraging bees release a pheromone which collectively signals the presence of foragers in the colony. This in turn inhibits the creation of nurse bees to keep the ratio of foragers to nurse bees within appropriate limits. Okay, so that gives you an idea of um, some of the things that you can uh, smell and hear. Um, and the other sense is touch. Um, I usually do my beekeeping with my hands having nothing on them. Um, if I'm finding that I'm getting a lot of stinging, I have... Um, some liquid smoke that it, that is used usually in cooking. Um, I drip that on my hands, a few drips on each of the palms, and then rub that in. Um, and the bees will not be able to find the pheromones on your wrists and on your hands. 
And so they won't necessarily sting you. They won't target and track you. Um, however, you still have to be extremely gentle and you still have to, when you reach in to go grab a, a frame or something, it's always great to give a little tiny touch or tap with the, um, the palms of your fingers, like the, the tabs of your fingers, and you just tap, tap, tap on the bees and they'll actually move over and get out of the way. Um, being able to sense if you're, you've got your finger on a bee is important. Um, being able to sense uh, the direction and the feel of the, the frame as it's being pulled out will help stop you from uh, squishing a queen. Um, and um, as you're handling and manipulating the frame, you can, uh, with your open hand, you can touch the, uh, um, the wax. And if it's hot, you can, you can feel um, where the, that the wax is pliable and not um, change the direction too quickly or put it in such a direction that it's going to fall out. So those are things that you do with, with touch. And, uh, and there are a lot of different ways that you're communicating to the bees with touch that you're not a threat. So you're going slow, you're being smooth, uh, you're not rolling any bees with your, with your um, brush, you're not rolling any bees as you pull frames out. Um, if you end up killing a bee while you're doing your beekeeping, they will release the, their uh, I'm dead pheromone. <laughs> and uh, the bees will start getting a little bit upset. So it's always good to be able to have smoke with you so that you can calm bees down. It's good to have um, some of that liquid smoke that you can rub onto your skin so that the bees can't find your pheromone. Um, and it's always good to uh, be very careful and smooth as you do things. Um, that is all we've got for you today. Um, so as you're, <laughs> as you're uh, listening to these podcasts, I want you guys to be thinking about your theory of beekeeping. What brings you to beekeeping? Why you are interfacing with the bees, how you're going to uh, um, um, in enable you to get in with the creation process with the bees, um, how you're going to um, work with them and, and uh, work for them. So anyways, guys, I really appreciate you guys stopping by. Make sure that whatever platform you're listening to this on, Please make sure that you like and subscribe. Um, today's podcast was a little bit uh, a little bit personal to me, <laughs> um, and I hope you uh, gain some things from it. Um, if you need to chat with me, make sure you uh, send me a line. You can find me at fatbeehoneyranch at gmail.com. I really appreciate you guys, and we'll talk with you soon.